to heart. All right. Well, if you would please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 once again. We had a little bit of a uh, excursus, a rabbit trail, if you will. Um, just a little interjection last week as we talked about uh, what, uh, what, what the, our actual cause is. Uh, and now we're going to come back and we're actually going to flesh that out a little bit more. Lane, would you do me a favor? Would you come up and would you take these curtains on this window and drop them down? Because we've got a glare over here that's uncomfortable for some. Yeah, just spread it out there. I think the next one will get it. Always a problem in the summer. It bounces off the cars. There, that's better. You don't like to be in a spotlight over there. Thank you very much, Lane. All right. Second Corinthians chapter 5. I'd ask if you're able, please, to stand for the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to begin reading at verse 11 and read through verse 15, which is our text for this morning. Therefore, Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please do be seated. Here's a question for you this morning. What or who are you living for? Now, before you rattle off in your mind the, the low-hanging fruit answer, because I'm in church uh, I have to say God, right? I want you to ask yourself that question after a moment's reflection. Think again. What or who are you really living for? You know, God has a lot of competition in your mind. A lot of competition in your heart, in your actions, doesn't he? There are a lot of things that can draw our attention away and that we can spend our time, our money, our energies, our attention, our compassion, our love, all of those things we can spend, uh, spend freely in a lot of different areas and live for that. Live for my family, live for my job, live for my pleasure, live for uh, my gain, live for um, you name it. And all the while we'll say, well, I'm living for God because after all, I read my Bible today and I went to church. So I'm living for him. Really. Paul, I think, all along as he's been working with the Corinthian church, has been challenging them on this assumption that they have. 
that just because they're in the church that, you know, it must be fine. And they're asking all kinds of provocative questions about how they're supposed to live, particularly in 1 Corinthians. He dealt with that a lot. Uh, all in an effort to try to excuse what really was the problem is that they were living for something other than the Lord himself. Now, they, they didn't respond to that, right? They didn't respond to that correction on his part at all very well and, and took out their, their anger about it on him and directed all kinds of false accusations and, and disregard and contempt towards him because he challenged them about what they were really living for. And you know, let's just say for a moment though, that even at this very moment, that you can affirm that you are living for him right now with no other distractions, with no, no other obstacles in the way. Even if you can affirm that, that in itself can be motivated by less than honorable motives, which of course deep sixes the whole thing to be. <laughs> uh, because, oh, I guess I wasn't living for him after all, right? We can be motivated by uh, our, our own sense of pride, of what we want our image to be, of uh, what we have erected in our mind's eye as uh, these, are the, uh, these are the criteria that uh, God that I believe God requires or should require. So therefore, I'm going to live according to that and God should accept it, that sort of thing. So it, it's, it's, there's actions involved. There's also motivations that are involved. Now, Paul himself, by the Corinthians, has been accused of what we call today grandstanding, just getting up there and saying his thing just so that he can, you know, bluster and bluff his way through and get people to do whatever he wants them to do. Uh, he's been accused of being inconsistent. He's been accused of doing his work without the same degree of authority as others. He's been accused of being um, uh, contemptible in his speech because he was plain spoken, did not uh, go along with the customs of the day of, of a high flowery rhetoric, rhetoric in uh, much of what was uh, done in that culture in the name of persuasion. Paul didn't do that, right? Um, so throughout this particular letter, he did it in 1 Corinthians as well, but even more so here as he is coming back and essentially rebuilding his relationship with them and rebuilding his relationship not just on a friendship basis, not just on a, uh, you know, we're going to get along basis, but on the basis of the apostle to the church. And he has asserted the authority of his office throughout this letter. He's asserted his right to speak. And he has asserted the purity of his motives as he's done so. So now, uh, you notice that he starts off saying in this particular section, verse 11, therefore, right? He has just spent, you might remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about longing for home. We, he's talked about... Uh, the, the heart's desire that every true believer has and our ultimate accountability to Christ uh, that makes us long for, for home and, and enduring peace. Now he reminds everyone, including us, 
of the genuine basis for our hope and, and why we remain here in the meantime. And that is to live for Christ. To live for Christ. These five verses pose several translation challenges, uh, interpretation challenges. Just, I think there are figures of speech here and, and the way Paul forms some of these ideas that are unfamiliar to us. And there's some things that you, as I read, perhaps, if you hadn't read this before, or it's been a while, as I read through him talking about, so you could boast about us, that sort of thing, you're going, huh? <laughs> what is that all about? There, there's a couple of passages like that that make you raise your eyebrows and, and um, get a little inquisitive about what Paul is actually saying here. So let's, let's take a look at these. We're going to begin at verse, uh, verses 11 and 12. That's our first section. Uh, really, 13 kind of goes along with it well. I, since, I, since I put the uh, outline notes uh, uh, in the bulletin, uh, I did some further editing, but uh, I'd already printed them, so I wasn't going to reprint them again. So really, verse 13 really should be included in this first section of living for Christ in integrity. And I'm going to develop it that way, but if it seems a little bit uh, uh, like... Wait a minute, I thought he was going on to the next main point. I'm really kind of covering all of it under living for Christ in integrity, which is verses 11 through 13. So let's think about this integrity matter here. Um, you look there at verse 11, and we looked at the beginning of verse 11 last time as, as, a, as a goal of, all right, since we're living in hope, since we're longing for home in the meantime, uh, recognizing that we're accountable while well, we seek to persuade men, and that's where we were going. And now I want to revisit that verse and tie it in here with uh, this uh, with this section. Uh, it, it really is a pivotal kind of transitional connection because all of that living for hope, all of that ultimate accountability is unto doing something. Being aware of what our hope is, being being uh, being filled with desire for it, should stir us up uh, to because we recognize who the Lord is and we respond to him in a, in a holy reverential fear. Well, that's not just so that we can sit around quaking in our boots. It's, it's motivates us to say, all right, um, there are others that need the gospel as well. So let's think about this matter of integrity that Paul is speaking about here. And he is looking primarily at his relationship before them. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Notice that the integrity that he's going to be talking about here begins with reverence. It begins with an understanding of who God is. Now, there is a, a, a sort of integrity that may seem to, uh, in the world, that may seem to not have any reference to God whatsoever. And if so, I mean, integrity is a good thing wherever you find it, that, uh, that people live according to their standards and so on. But what if the standard is not so good? A person can have integrity by living according to a corrupt and perverse standard. Uh, we can say they're a person of integrity. Well, that's great. But if if it's the wrong standard, then it doesn't count for much and indeed can cause a great deal of harm. Um, 
you know, a, a terrorist lives with a certain degree of integrity, living according to the teachings of their, their leader uh, or their fanatical beliefs. And the, the harm can be inconceivable that it does to others. This is an integrity that doesn't come out of our own standards or even our own ideas about where our hope should lie, but it springs out of a holy reverential fear of our God. So reverence is key because that's our, the Lord is our starting point. But now that's one thing, but now take a look there at the next part of verse 11. It's kind of the, the flip side of that coin, if you will. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. So Paul is not just saying, well, I've got some sort of pie-in-the-sky idea of who God is, and, and um, he's, he's out there somewhere. Uh, I don't really have any interaction with him, but uh, just because I know he's out there, I'm going to live a certain way. He recognizes that this integrity is not just a matter of some theoretical thing, but it actually is tied in with a relationship in the presence of the God who is the source of our standards. So this is an integrity out of reverence, but a, a, an integrity with a recognition of God's presence and immediate accountability that we have to God. So this is our integrity that is before God himself. Paul is saying to them, uh, though I've got a lot of detractors out there, the Lord knows how I have conducted myself. The Lord knows how I've preached. The Lord knows what I've said. And I have walked before him knowing, knowing the terror that he uh, excites in the minds of those who are in opposition against him and also knowing that I am accountable to him and relate to him. I trust that your integrity before the Lord is a relational integrity and not a mere theoretical one. Right? And then look at the next part of verse 11 and on into 12. And this is one of those interesting little, little portions here where he says, all right, I hope it is known also to your conscience. So, that part's straightforward. It's like, all right, there's an integrity. Yes, knowing who God is, or an integrity that comes out of a relationship that I have with him, but also is an integrity that is evident and is known to the Corinthians. So it was an integrity in the presence of others, before others, that his conduct, if they'd stop to think about it for a minute, they would understand, they would, they would have to agree that he had been walking consistently with what he had been preaching, and that preaching was consistent with the Word of God. He appeals to their conscience. Notice he doesn't appeal, he doesn't say, and I trust it's known to your minds or your memories. He's calling upon them to be honest with themselves about him. And if, and if they are, they will recognize that the ministry that God has given to Paul and that Paul exercised in their presence was a ministry that was consistent with God's word and God's character from start to finish. But now here in verse 12 is one of these interesting verses that we look at and go, okay, Paul, what are you, what are you saying here? We are not commending ourselves to you again. But it sounds like that's exactly what he's doing. What he means by this is that he, he's not 
trying to go after self-promotion. So when he says, I'm not commending myself, it's not like I'm, it's, I'm not building up myself in your minds just for the sake of building myself up in your minds. I'm not trying to promote myself. That's not the point. Paul recognized that he had an authority that was granted to him by God as an apostle that not everybody else had, that he was particularly tasked with reaching, being the apostle of the Gentiles. He took that seriously. He wanted them to take it seriously, not so that they would all go, Paul, you're just the greatest thing ever since sliced bread. But because Paul, he is the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'd better pay attention to what Christ has to say through this man. So he says, I'm not commending myself. But, but then, okay, then the next phrase is even more puzzling at first glance. But Paul says, I'm giving you cause to boast about us. What in the world does he mean by that? You're you're helped by you look at the rest of that verse. So that you may be answered those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. What Paul is saying here is, it's not that I want you to go around and and brag on me everywhere. But Paul had been faced, as we've talked about already this morning and have talked about it in the past. Paul's been faced with all these false allegations about his motives, about his methods, uh, all of that stuff. And particularly by those who uh, were consumed with outward appearances. I mean, Paul was one of those that uh, they, they said, oh, you know, he's just contemptible in his speech. And uh, I, you know, Others have pointed this out before, but if you ever if you ever really thought about the Apostle Paul's experiences and really read through that laundry list that he gives of all the suffering that he endured, shipwrecks and beatings and being stoned and all of this stuff, do you think that had an impact upon his body? Maybe just a little? Yeah, probably. I would suspect so. He certainly had a thorn in the flesh of some kind, whether most believe it was eyesight issues. But whether it was that or some other physical infirmity, Paul was uh, apparently far from the, you know, the fl- uh, a flower of human perfection standing before them. If they were looking for excuses on the outward appearance to disregard this guy, there were plenty. And Paul acknowledged that. But Paul also recognizes that believers need to walk in submission to the Lord's appointments of those that he's placed in positions of authority. And, and he wants people to be able to say, what I'm basically doing is, I'm trying to give you ammunition here against those that want to falsely uh, accuse me of things, give you answers for these false allegations, and so that, so that you don't end up disregarding God's word because you're paying attention to the failures or the, the weaknesses of the servant is what that really boils down to. So again, he's not here to blow his own horn. Um, he says, no, in this, in this, it's not about appearances. This is authentic action, Paul says, I have been involved in. And therefore... You, uh, you need to recognize that and, 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 and be able to answer those who uh, would boast about you know, this guy or that guy. Remember the Corinthian church, 
were they partisan? Did they have a tendency toward that? They were looking for this leader and that leader and this other guy? Yeah. They were, they were focused on outward appearances and not the heart. Paul says, what I've been doing before you is authentic in action. It's not just a game. Uh, John Calvin at this point uh, made this statement, and I've given it to you there. It's just an excellent uh, statement regarding uh, Paul's thought here and what it, the ultimate point is. It says here, we are here taught that Christ's servants ought to be concerned as to their own reputation only insofar as is for the advantage of the church. That's Paul's motivation. As far as the rest of his reputation, he doesn't care. But as it affects the church in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is zealous for their reputation. And that's the point that is going on here. And then we look at verse 13. And really, this is still part of walking in integrity toward others. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Paul, uh, apparently, was being accused of being out of his, uh, out of his mind. Not, not so much in an insanity kind of thing, but just... Uh, well, we know that there were some times when Paul would talk about you know, being lifted up into the, the third heaven and so on, and he uh, would talk about things that the rest of us were scratching our heads about and going, you know, what's, what's, he, what's he getting at there? And Paul is saying, all right, if I've been out of my head, it's in the presence of God. I'm accountable to him. All right. If I'm in my right mind, just understand, (laughs) you better be paying attention. This is about ministering to you. This integrity is about living for Christ to edify others, to build them up. This, if you uh, you want to think about it this way, in verse 13, all the motivation that we were talking about for service is really summed up here in verse 13. This is, I'm in the presence of God and my service is for you. I'm here to build you up. That's what this is all about. Charles Hodge said at this point, whether Paul praised himself or whether he did not, whether the manner in which he had spoken of himself be considered insanity or sobriety, He spoke not for himself, but for God and his people. And beloved, when we speak to others about Christ, there are going to be those that look, that that deride us or think we're foolish or want to tout human wisdom as opposed to what the scriptures have to say. And they may say you're out of your mind. They may say you're illogical. I've had somebody say that to me not long ago. Uh, I've had... You know, had people tell me I'm completely out to lunch and how could anybody believe that? It's like, well, um, I'm still going to speak what God has to say. And it's not up to me to change their minds. I can't do that. The Lord has to change their minds. The Lord has to change their hearts so that their minds can be changed. So, my point as a pastor and your point of living as as the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to strive to live in integrity before God and men and so speak and so act in a way that brings uh, edification and help to others through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if, am I careful about my reputation as a pastor? 
Absolutely I am. Is it so that everybody in town will think I'm wonderful? No. If it ever gets to be that way, somebody come up and slap me upside the head because that is not what the whole point of guarding your reputation is about. My point in guarding my reputation, your point in guarding your reputation is to not bring any shadow of doubt or cloud over the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, all that I've done before God and before man is been in integrity. So he's talked about this matter of what the motivation is to live for Christ. And verses 14 and 15 now really expand on this idea of what the motivation is and really give the idea of, of what all is behind that motivation, okay? So in verses 14 and 15, I could sum it up by this statement, live for Christ through dying with Christ. Live for Christ through dying with Christ. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. I just want to focus just on that phrase. This living for Christ that we're talking about is driven by love. Driven by love. But this might not be what you're thinking. When you say a construction like this in Greek, actually in any language really, um, but in Greek, a construction like this can be taken a couple of ways. When you talk about love, um, uh, the love of Christ controls us. That means, that could mean that that's our love for Christ, the love of Christ. Or it could mean Christ's love. And here, the, the construction of this, the grammar of it, demands the second choice. It is the love of Christ that constrains us or controls us. Now, certainly there is a place for our love for Christ and unto him and out of response of gratitude. But the apostles point here is not looking at how well we love Christ and that that's what's going to motivate us because we just love him so much we're going to go out and serve him. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying Christ's love for you has brought you to this place, has compelled you uh, by, the, by its power and by its object to uh, constrain you into walking in a manner that is worthy of him. Compare this with Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, which where Paul again is speaking to the Galatian church, and he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So there, there's that aspect from us to, towards God. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is his love that drives us and that calls us and that stirs us. Not our love for him because our love is fickle. Our love uh, varies from day to day and moment to moment. We have plenty of, plenty of warnings against a, a lukewarm love, do we not, uh, towards the Lord Jesus Christ and one another. A wonderful quote here by Charles Hodge that I want to share with you. Uh, a Christian, he says, is one who recognizes Jesus as the Christ. 
the Son of the living God, as God manifested in the flesh, loving us and dying for our redemption, and who is so affected by the sense of the love of this incarnate God as to be constrained to make the will of Christ the rule of his obedience and the glory of Christ the great end for which he lives. Actually, I want to read that to you again. Because really, he summarizes the gospel so beautifully here. And, and what our obligation is as a result of our redemption. A Christian is one who recognizes Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, as God manifested in the flesh, loving us and dying for our redemption, and who is so affected by a sense of the love of this incarnate God as to be constrained to make the will of Christ the rule of his obedience and the glory of Christ the great end for which he lives. It is the love of Christ that compels us and draws us it's behind the doctrine of irresistible grace. It's not about, oh, he's twisting my arm into believing in him. No, it's his love is so compelling. So compelling. That as he changes our hearts and grants us faith and repentance, we come and we're like running. We are so constrained to come and love him and serve him. That is what Paul is saying here. Now, let's look at something that seems like it's counterintuitive in the second half of this verse and then moving on into verse 15. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So you've got a lot of, of, of dying and living going on here. But notice that as our, as our as I started off on this point, that we live for Christ through dying with Christ. This is the heart of our redemption, folks. You cannot live before God unless you have first died with Christ. Living that is brought about by dying. That is the counterintuitive part of this. And this is where, this is where you lose the fallen world. Because they only want to think about living. They don't want to think about the dying part. Because the dying part speaks to the necessity of dealing with sin in the only way that it can be adequately dealt with, and that is through the death of somebody. We don't want to think about that. That's why when Jesus said, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, people were offended. They said, it's a hard saying, we can't hear it. It wasn't just they were thinking he's a cannibal. They recognized that this is far more than just, hey, I'm just going to believe and everything's going to be rosy and great. They were well aware, those, those disciples that turned away, and they were not so great disciples after all, that turned away because it was a hard saying. They were fully aware about what flesh and blood sacrifices were all about. Their whole society was built around that. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew it wasn't about cannibalism. They knew it was about being accountable to, this, to him as the Messiah, the one who would be the only sacrifice for their sins and that everything else 
that they were doing was inadequate. Now, uh, we need to look at this textually because this is one of those passages that universalists like to say, well, see, everybody's going to get saved. All right. Nope. It's not what he's saying here. Um, but uh, we have the phrase, one has died for all, therefore all died. That the, this, the verb for died in both cases is exactly the same except for the subject. So um, there's one letter difference. It's the same it's the same verb, same tense, everything. So grammatically, they have to be understood in exactly the same way. You don't make one mean one thing and make one mean another. And I won't go into all the aberrations of different ways, wrong ways of interpreting this verse. Uh, but literally, Paul here is saying, if one died, then all died. So let's think about that. Um, it means that Jesus' death secured their death. In other words, uh, all for whom he died, follow me on this, died with him. This is the heart of what is going on in communion. We are saying we're participants with him in his death. Beloved, if we are not participants with him in his death, we have no part of his life. Bottom line. Paul is saying here, Christ died for the all who died when he died. Now, it's very clear from Romans chapter 5, which uh, won't take time to go there, but you can look at verses 12 through 21. You want to, this afternoon, uh, profitable read, take a look there and notice our connection with Adam and how we died with him in sin. And now it's necessary in order to come to new life that we've got to essentially die again before we can be born again. But this time die in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we do not die in him, then we're still in our sins because the sins wouldn't be paid for. But because Christ bore those, we are, uh, we, we, figuratively die with him. In Adam, there's a physical death and corruption. In Christ, we're talking spiritual death that has to happen so that the physical life can be restored. Right? Has to come full circle. Uh, Hodge sums it up. It's bedrock of the gospel. Man ruined by the sin of Adam is restored by the work of Christ. And notice here in this verse, it's very clear, this isn't talking about that Christ died for everybody. That's not what it's saying. It's saying he died for those for whom he died. And particularly those who died when he died. The fact that you, if it weren't for verse 15, you could say, you, you could have reason to believe that that's, he was saying he died for everybody. That's not what it's saying. Verse 15 makes it really clear. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. That in itself takes universalism right out of it. Because very clearly, not all live by this statement. Nor will all live. Some will and some won't for eternity. So this, this dying, we must die with Christ. Dying to ourselves. Our sins have to be hidden in him. If they're not, we are lost. But the way this is constructed is should engender in us 
an incredible amount of hope and understanding that as we're living for him, we are able to do that. And, and living for him in every respect of persuading others and every other act of service, it's, we're able to do that because he died for all who died with him. Okay. And there's many other passages we could talk about regarding uh, his own and everything, but we don't have time this morning. Just focus here. Again, I want to come back to communion. If we haven't died with him, we can't live with him. Or stated in a positive way, um, if we are dead with him, we shall also live with him. If that sounds familiar, that's Romans chapter 6 and verse 8. If, uh, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Uh, one more quote from Hodge. Got a lot of, got a lot of mileage out of Hodge this week. Uh, really a super help uh, working through this brief passage. Dying with Christ, he said, involves death to self and sin. And of course, includes the obligation so to die. We have to put it to death. The death of Christ reconciles us to God and reconciliation to God secures a life of devotion to his service. In the next passage, Paul's going to talk about being an ambassador. We're going to look at that um, pretty closely in a couple of weeks. The point of all this is that you and I must die with Christ in order to live for Christ faithfully and eternally. And so I will ask, I opened with a question. I will ask you another question. Have you died with Christ? And if you have, by his grace, then live for him with all your might. Let's pray. Heavenly, for, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this brief passage, challenging in some ways. Perhaps most challenging of all is the recognition that there's not a thing that we can do that earns our redemption, that we, we must die with Christ. We have to lay everything else aside and trust only in his finished work on the cross for our redemption. Our sins are great, but we praise you that our Redeemer is greater. Help us to live for you, for him, faithfully, with vitality and intention and purpose and, and zeal to bring you glory and draw others who, uh, who see evidence in us of your great love for us. In Christ's name we pray.